So you've got silence, you've got slowness, and those are the consistent themes that run through the whole film. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, before we get started on the topic, uh, I wanted to mention that we recently on a podcast talked uh, quite a bit about changes in language, and we ended up talking about uh, the singular they being adopted by the Washington Post, using they as a singular pronoun. And I was pleased to see that uh, last week, the American Dialect Society chose singular they as their word of the year for 2015. Yeah, right. So that's good for us. We're staying current. Uh, now, today's topic, which is also as currency, because uh, for a couple of reasons, um, one is with the passing of David Bowie last week, I noticed a lot of people referring to his song, uh, Space Oddity, and uh, that relates to another uh, podcast that we did recently where we, we were talking about the solstice and we were talking about other terms that were related to astronomy. And uh, there was one that we did not get to, which was concerning infinity. And uh, I think you have some things to say about how that word was used erroneously in the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. So we're going from the space oddity to space odyssey. Again, we're staying current. <laughs> but uh, this is a film that I know that uh, in your uh, professional life, you have dealt with quite a bit because as a professor of English literature, you made it something of your specialty to deal with science fiction and with science fiction as depicted in film. Yeah, I actually taught a course two years on science fiction film, and uh, 2001 was definitely one of the most important ones. The movie is divided into three sections, and each section has a title, and one of them is called Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Right, and that struck me as very odd when I first saw it, um, because the definition of infinite is you can't get beyond it. So, um, as I note in common years in English usage, infinite is almost never used literally. Mm -hmm. So, the infinite seems to be using in the sense of the great stretches of space. Right? Mm -hmm. Of course, there are theories now that say there's more than one universe, so you could go beyond the universe. But technically, going beyond the infinite is pretty much impossible. And when Buzz Lightyear has as his catchphrase, to infinity and beyond, he's obviously... It's just a pure joke. The writers are satirizing that. I think they're looking back to 2001. Like, sure, yeah. <laughs> okay, this is this what this dumb toy would think was a good expression for space travel. <laughs> um, but generally, 2001 is famous for getting things right scientifically. There is a, there's a lot of nitpicking that's gone on to see where things have done. But there's never been a film that has done a better job of depicting space travel in a realistic fashion than 2001. The other film which has been uh, treated as situations in space and do zero gravity much better 
than most is the film, recent film, Gravity. Um, but that didn't involve as much of the complexity that 2001 did. Uh, of course, it's totally ignored in, in the Star Wars franchise where rocket ships can swoop around and have wings and space and, and make roaring sounds and explosions, make big clouds of stuff going out. So we can talk about that another time. But um, 2001 is, is famous for having actually Kubrick consulting with scientists and trying to get the look as right as possible sometimes to a fanatical degree. Mm-hmm. Today, I think when you hear the word 2001, the first thing most people think of is 9-11. Mm-hmm. It was not the year that humanity uh, discovered an alien life form and, and went out to explore the universe. It was instead when some old-fashioned airplane hijackers managed to wreak havoc on New York. But the film still lives on. Uh, it was recently rebroadcast on Turner Classic Movies, and I watched it again to just to refresh my memory of it. And uh, the film is is dated in some respects, uh, mm-hmm. most notably because he did a very strong product placement of Pan Am mm-hmm. as the uh, space company of the future, having been a major airline at that time. Of course, it went bankrupt a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are a few other little touches like that. The thing about 2001, one thing about 2001, is that it baffled a lot of early viewers created a sense of awe in many what in science fiction tradition is called the sense of wonder mm-hmm. or <laughs> slangily referred to as the sense of wonder s-a-n-s-a-w-u-n-d-e-r can, can i include myself in that yeah i you have to press if we're, if we're going to be talking about uh, a space odyssey uh and not a space oddity uh, I, I might know more about that than I do a space odyssey, but the, the 2001 film I did actually see, but it's been so many years. I am not going to be able to add much to the conversation myself, except to say when I did see it, I did have that sense of wonder. Uh, I saw it on the big screen when it was released in 1968 and I was dropped off at the Saturday matinee with my cousin to go see this new film that was all about space. And how old were you at that time? Uh, I would have been seven at that time. Right. And you might expect a seven-year-old to be uh, fidgeting in the seat, running out for popcorn 20 times, uh, trying to use up all the candy allowance <laughs> just to get away from this incredibly boring and slow film. But... I was completely, I just remember being, it was completely unforgettable. I just remember being completely um, captivated by the film. Obviously, I'm not enough of an auteur to have gone back and studied what created that sense of wonder in me, but it was definitely present. Right, and the film caught on, especially with... uh, people who were taking drugs a lot of the time. It was right in the middle of the hippie era. And it was, it was interesting because on the one hand, the film is all about hardware. And the other hand, it's about mysticism and spectacular visual things, particularly the, the light show sequence that uh, takes place using the slit screen technology and in the final sequence that, that takes Bowman uh, to the, this distant apartment where he's going to be reborn. Uh, and there were lots of people who got deliberately stoned 
to go to the movie and see it in its enhanced form. Mm -hmm. And it got a certain notoriety at the time because of that. I think that's kind of been forgotten by now. But mm -hmm. So not only did those people not mind being baffled, they were seeking to be baffled in an interesting way as a kind of um, almost like an LSD trip. Yeah, mm -hmm. there you go. Um, the result was reviewers and audiences alike uh, were often very confused by it. Some of them would be amazed and entranced, but still couldn't tell you really what it was about. And others said, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand what this film is doing. And others said, I can't be bothered with it. It's so slow and it's so boring. Nothing happens, essentially. And then all of a sudden there's some action and then it doesn't seem to connect with other action and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of that was this was such a huge sensation and it was shown in Cinerama theaters, although it wasn't shot using the Cinerama technique of three cameras, but it was shot in that format, very widescreen, very high definition. And I've always wanted to see it in Cinerama again, because I saw it in Cinerama the first time. Um, there is, there's still one of the very few still functioning Cinerama theaters in Seattle. Is, is, is in Seattle, um, owned by Paul Allen, mm -hmm. who keeps it up very nicely. In the summer, they show Cinerama films that were mm. shown, but they show all kinds of big things. We, we went there to see all the Lord of the Rings films because they have the best sound system and seats mm -hmm. and projection system and everything around. And in Portland, Oregon here, there's a 70-millimeter uh, a projector that will show the film from time to time. Right, yeah, and it's mm -hmm. best seen in 70-millimeter for sure. Mm -hmm. So anyway, there was a lot of public interest in it, and Kubrick was already a big name. He had already done Dr. Strangelove, which was a hit. And, uh, and part of the problems that comes out of 2001, we'll see, comes from him not wanting to replicate what he did in Dr. Strangelove. I'll talk about that a bit later. The people who were not so puzzled were people who read a lot of science fiction, not people who just like science fiction movies about Frankenstein and monsters from outer space and giant ants and so on, but people who actually read literary science fiction that involved explorations in space and encounters with aliens. And that was certainly me. I started reading science fiction uh, a great deal when I was in seventh grade. And so by this time, um, I had pretty good background, and so I could tell pretty much what he was getting at in the story, and I was very interested in the fact that the script was written by Arthur C. Clarke, a very important, very influential, uh, extremely popular science fiction writer. And the two of them collaborated in a kind of interesting way for this film. Clarke had written uh, several things before that I'll talk about in a minute. But there's an ambiguity created by a tension between Clarke on the one hand and Kubrick on the other. Now, if you search on the web for explanations of 2001, you can find a zillion of them. And there are a lot of different ways to do this, and Kubrick actually encouraged that. He refused to explain the film himself, I think partly because he couldn't, because he made some decisions that were just not capable of creating clarity. Um, but anyway, he, he generally didn't like to explain his films. And uh, we'll put up a link to an interview with Kubrick about the film that... Uh, explain some of that. But I wanted to go back and track it to Clark first. Uh, Clark's first published story was called The Sentinel, uh, which really originates the idea of an alien artifact that, that contacts the human race. That was in 1948. He won 
a, a BBC contest for uh, a short story. And then very not long after, 1953, uh, comes Against the Fall of Night, uh, which he reworked later in, in various forms, but the, the, the version most people knew first was 1953, and then followed it almost immediately with Childhood's End, which became his most famous novel before 2001. And both of those have to do with superior aliens contacting the human race and changing human destiny. Hmm. And that is a theme that obsesses Clark and ran through his, his whole career. Uh, he's famous for a statement that he made in 1973, 20 years later, which gets quoted all the time on the internet. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which means that you can be scientific in a science fiction sense and still create that sense of wonder because for most people, um, it, it's amazing. And it, this takes its uh, form in something that really annoys me. <laughs> when uh, doctors try some new surgery or therapy and you know millions of dollars have been invested in the research and people have risked their lives uh, undergoing it and the doctors have got all this training and a huge team works together and they pull it off and the person is cured and what do the relatives say oh it's a miracle thank god well so advanced technology still seems magical miracle to a lot of people mm -hmm. now and then he returned to this theme after 2001 in, uh, besides writing the two sequels, which were really novelizations of the movie sequels, and we could talk about those, um, but he returned to one of my favorite Clark novels, Rendezvous with Rama, which I actually taught at one semester as a book, 1972. It's uh, what's called um, hard science fiction. It's essentially um, a very, very, very large alien spacecraft uh, is found drifting apparently inert and, and empty, and uh, it's about the expedition to penetrate it and discover what's going on in it. And um, it is amazing because I just summarized the whole plot, essentially, and you'd think, well, that's not very promising for an adventure story, and it's absolutely gripping. Many people have wanted to make it into a movie, but nobody's ever come up with a, a script, and part of that is, you know, it's just stumbling on machinery functioning and technology working in various ways. I, I still highly recommend it as a book, but I'm, I would love to see it as a movie. I think with today's special effects, you could really make it awesome in the literal sense of art. But um, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So Clark has this interesting combination then of being definitely not religious in the usual sense and writing things that sort of mock religion on the one hand, but feeling the need for transcendence on the other and feeling that science can supply that, and specifically science fiction, by taking current trends and ideas and projecting them, extrapolating them, as we like to say, uh, into the distant future. And the, nothing is more awesome to a mind like that than just looking out at the universe and imagining the distant stars and how... Uh, unimaginably unreachable they are and how wildly different beings out there must be. Um, these days, there, there's a, a lot of 
lot of us think that the reason Earth has not been visited by aliens uh, doesn't have to do with uh, them not being there or us being not an attractive destination. Simply, they're just so, the worlds are just so far apart. Uh, space travel is limited by the speed of light and uh, likelihood that somebody would find it uh, just technologically capable of traveling that long and that far. Uh, just doesn't make sense. Yeah, Stephen Hawking has been warning people recently that we shouldn't be contacting aliens because they'll probably come and destroy us. I, you know, I respect Stephen Hawking, but I think that's dumb because it's just so impractical. There is nothing you can gain that makes any sense by getting in a spaceship and traveling for centuries and then uh, landing on an alien world. One, at one point, uh, Isaac Asimov had a theory. He said that uh, it seems to be a tendency, in our case anyway, that as technology becomes more advanced, we become more self-destructive, and that if a civilization reaches the point of having created the atomic bomb, um, and they don't use it to wipe themselves out, then they've probably become a peaceful people. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be uh, interested in blowing us up. So I always thought that was a pretty smart comment. He didn't always think the same thing, consistent on that. Anyway, Clark's ambiguity about transcendence is just fascinating, uh, and it fascinated Kubrick. And the two of them took on this project, and that's what, even though they differed on a lot of things, that's what they have in common, is at the one hand, trying to be very hardware-oriented, very, not down to earth, certainly, but uh, very concrete, very specific, and very scientific, very transcendent and, and wonder-inducing at the same time. That's what the key to 2001 is all about. Now, I'm going to take a, an angle which I did not invent. I picked this up by reading a scholarly article in 2001 years ago, and I cannot remember who wrote it, and I don't have access to the scholarly library I used to have before I retired. So maybe somebody out there would know this. But this was an article about language in 2001, which is why we're talking about it on Common Errors in English Usage. It's about language and its misuse and miscommunication in the film. It's a major, major theme. It's famous that the first 25 minutes of the film, there is no dialogue unless you count the screechings of the ape creatures as being communication. Mm -hmm. uh, they're clearly not very articulate. And most people who have have studied the film know that uh, this was based on the theories of Raymond Dart, who was a popular anthropologist at the time, who developed what's been called the killer ape hypothesis. And was saying, well, how did humans triumph uh, over other hominid forms, particularly over the Neanderthals? And he said, well, their, their brains developed it in such a way that they, you know, they didn't grow long claws and and fangs and stuff, that, and they weren't as, as strong as uh, Neanderthals, but the brains enabled them to use tools specifically to make weapons and to become really dangerous. So it's humanity's aggressive tendencies and their willingness to kill, uh, specifically to kill for food, but also to kill for rivals like the Neanderthals, that is the essence of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so Kubrick probably... I mean, his book was a, a best-selling at that time, and Kubrick undoubtedly was influenced by him when he developed this, and Clark working together with him now. 
Interesting to me, generally that kind of theory has been rejected now. And we can look back and see that that was really influenced by the Cold War. Uh, now we say, uh, well, of, of some technological feed, well, we, we, we went to the moon. That was a great achievement. And the days before that, though, is we developed the atomic bomb. And in the Cold War, that looked very scary. It was promising and it was supposed to defeat us from the horrors of communism. But on the other hand, it might kill us, wipe out our civilization. But um, there's an alternative theory, which is that it's not human aggressiveness that caused us to triumph and conquer the globe, but our cooperativeness. The fact is that human beings work together in tribes. You go cook dinner, I'll stand at the mouth of the cave and keep the critters away. Or um, I, I know you're, you're burying a child and you've got another one on the way, um, and as a woman, so I, the man, will uh, hang around for a while and take care, help take care of the kids. Uh, I'm not just going to mate briefly with you and leave like a lion and leave you to raise the kids on your own. Mm. That does happen, of course, but mm -hmm. that is not necessarily, that's not the dominant behavior of human beings. They form families and they stay together a long time because those big brains, uh, in order to come out of a woman who can still walk around, she can't have hips beyond a certain width, She's uh, they, the brain has to have time to expand after it comes out of the birth canal, and that means long, slow growth learning process, and that child needs a lot of nurturing and protection during that period, and the family and that tribe makes uh, a lot of sense. So the fact that, that we could work together and ultimately go on to do agriculture and build civilizations, um, that those were the, the qualities that really made human triumph. And I've connected this in my own mind with Peter Kropotkin's uh, famous book from 1902, one of the founding fathers of modern anarchism, Mutual Aid, a Factor of Evolution. He put forward that idea early on. I never see Kropotkin mentioned in Scientific American, but I think he deserves a little credit when they talk about these kind of theories. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the first mystery in the movie is the appearance of the black monolith. And it's clearly an instructional device, and it's meant to stimulate the brains of these ape-like beings and prompt them to learn how to use bones, in this case, as, as a weapon, and starts them down on the evolutionary path to dominance. In Clark's book, there's much more detail about this, and the, the, the monoliths actually turn white and become kind of like giant video screens and instruct them in all kinds of things. And, this is the impulse of Clark is to explain everything. Mm -hmm. The impulse of Kubrick is to keep it mysterious. Mm -hmm. and he didn't like the idea of having a big, you know, educational TV show out there in Savannah. So he just kept them black. So now we're to the point of the film where uh, there's a bone, right, that right. rises up. Well, the ape guy it's, it's, uses it to, to kill. Um, and smash a rival, and everybody's pounding on him, and they're grabbing bones and smashing and smashing and smashing. He's clearly dead. He keeps smashing, so you see this aggressiveness. And then he gives this roar, triumphant roar and flings the bone mm -hmm. up into, into the sky where it whirls around, twirls and twirls in slow motion, and morphs into a space vehicle. Mm -hmm. Actually, supposed to be a satellite, but it is vaguely bone shaped. Yes. And that is all based on this, this theme of aggressiveness. Now, in Clark's mind, 
this story was going to be about the danger of nuclear war from space satellites or orbiting space stations. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing is the bone is a weapon, and then that spaceship you see is, is supposed to be a weapon too, originally. However, a couple of things messed that up. One is that Kubrick decided he just didn't like the, the nuclear war theme to be repeated in this movie. He'd just done it in Dr. Strangelove, and he didn't want to start do the same thing again. But also, <laughs> the Russians and the Americans signed a peace treaty while they were making the film, uh, saying that they would not um, put nuclear weapons in space. So it really kind of undermined that whole thing and made it pointless. But the, the transition remains. And that's one of the things that makes the film mysterious, in that it, the concept of that opening scene and the transition to the spacecraft has a very strong meaning, which has been now subtracted from the film. So no wonder it confused people. Mm -hmm. And uh, but interestingly, in the film, the Cold War is still on. It's sort of simmering. And Russia is, uh, you know, the, the idea that the Soviet Union collapsed never crossed his mind. But Russia is uh, more or less on friendly relations with us. But we're still spying on each other. We're still not telling the truth to each other. Tensions are there now. In the novel, they're very much there, and they're very important. And scary, and we're on the brink possibly of a nuclear war. Um, so in in the movie, of course, there's very friendly relations going on. But after this whole opening, and when we go off into space, there's still no dialogue for a long time. And in fact, there's very little dialogue in the whole film. And most of it consists of lies, or evasions, or mistakes. So the old slogan, Failure to communicate from a very different film really could be applied to this film. Uh, it's, it's about failures to communicate. Now, another major theme of the film is the hubris of the human race, thinking that it can understand, grasp, and control forces that are far beyond its current state of civilization. You know, it's, it's, it's a smug attitude on the part of the scientists and the astronauts that uh, we know we can, how to deal with this sort of thing. It's interesting, but we got it. We're, you know, it's, it's something we can control. And of course, that's not the case at all. And, and the scenes in space are silent for a very good reason. And there is no air in space. Sound cannot travel in space. You could be two inches away from a spaceship with its engines roaring. You wouldn't hear a thing. Mm -hmm. So um, Kubrick copies that and, of course, uses music very effectively instead. But there are also long scenes in which there's just, just silence. And that's what space is really about. It's about silence. And the other thing that people often don't realize is that when, when you're doing uh, space exploration and you're taking a rocket someplace like, even on a very short trip like to the moon, it always bothers me when somebody refers to going to the moon as going into outer space. That's nearby space. That's our backyard. Mm -hmm. But anything like that, use your rockets only to get underway. And once you've reached the escape velocity and, and are on your way and have maneuvered to get aimed to wherever you're going, your rockets are turned off. There are no rocket engines roaring like constantly. I use them for acceleration, but once an object is moving, it keeps moving in space uh, on its own. So in, in Star Trek, and you always hear this rumble, rumble, rumble going on throughout the scenes while they're on board 
the enterprise, I always figured it must be the ventilation system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So um, he's got a good scientific reason, but he's got a good artistic reason for keeping it silent as well. It helps to create that sense of awe and incomprehension. There are also no, there's not the ability to make abrupt maneuvers in space. Um, you can't swoop. You can't jerk around easily. Um, what you're maneuvering, you're going to be doing in very slow ways. And it's so the uh, approach to the space station that they make at the beginning and this approach to the moon have that quality of being very, very slow and gradual and majestic. And uh, if you're just impatient to see something happen quick, um, it's going to frustrate you. They're trying to go beyond the whole tradition in the uh, Buck Rogers serials, for instance. They used to show a rocket ship in the atmosphere flying like an airplane mm -hmm. and having sparklers out its rear end mm -hmm. um, and then smoke puffing up from it. And then it would circle around for a landing the way an airplane might circle before a landing, which makes no sense for a rocket whatsoever. So he's trying to, to create a whole new look for how rockets look and, and behave in space. Um, so, and, and slowness is also characteristic of free fall. That is when there is no, uh, when you're not under the influence of gravity or that at least you're under the same influence as your surroundings. So you float and we're all familiar with seeing astronauts do that, but things move slowly. You can't use, uh, uh, push off from something very rapidly and, and do the, every, everything takes much longer to do. It's much harder to work in space uh, to do very simple things because of the lack. Gravity is very handy for getting things done. So you've got silence, you've got slowness, and those are the consistent themes that run through the whole film. So the first character we're introduced to, Haywood Floyd, is actually asleep when we first encounter him. Um, He's not even snoring, so has no sound whatsoever from there. Uh, later, he tries to make a call home to talk to his wife. She's in the shower, evidently, and even the, the uh, babysitter or whoever it is that's taking care of the little girl, his daughter, uh, is unavailable. And he has this uh, conversation, which is a little frustrating, with the, the daughter who doesn't understand at all what he's up to, and wishes he could be there for his birthday, and seems... Uh, she doesn't seem terribly anguished about it. She has no comprehension of what he's talking about. He wants her to tell uh, his wife that he called, but it's when he's talking about a four-year-old, it's not at all clear that that message is ever going to get delivered. And so he has just this, this little ir irrelevant chat. It explains to us absolutely nothing about what we're doing. Now, there's an old tradition in science fiction of, of the less elegant kind of what's called the info dump. Uh, probably in, invented by Jules Verne, he used to do a lot of it, where characters get together and say, well, as you all know, we're on this expedition, we're, we're going to the moon to explore and, and see what this strange radio signal is that we've detected recently, and uh, of course, I am the captain, and, and you are the crew, and you know, sometimes it gets ridiculous, because they, they're explaining so much. Cooper goes in the opposite direction. Not only doesn't explain what's going on, he has all the dialogue referring to stuff that has nothing to do with what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then Floyd decides he needs to go to the toilet and is confronted with these ridiculously long instructions on the complex things about how to use a, a zero-gravity toilet, 
which have been all, uh, people have patiently transcribed them by freezing the film, and you can find them on the web. They're really kind of hilarious. So when he meets with the Russians, the whole scene is entirely deceptive. It looks very friendly. They're, they're obviously in friendly terms. They know each other's families. They've visited. You know, it's very warm. And Floyd is lying through his teeth. He's, he's doing nothing but concealing what's going on. And what's happened, of course, is the Americans have shut down all communications from the Clavius site where the signal's coming from. And they, they're leaking out this rumor that there's been an outbreak of a disease of some kind there, that they're quarantining it. Uh, and he very cleverly insinuates this without really saying so and leads the Russians to think that that's what it's all about. Of course, that's to keep the Russians away so that they won't horn in on this discovery. And then there's this, this big conference um, in that we begin to learn finally what's going on. But the thing is that they don't know what's going on. But um, they're, well, you see them at their most confident at that point. They're, we've got this under control. We're going to go out and examine it, take care of it. But you have these big white screens in the back that sort of continue this theme of blankness. When the monolith is, is uncovered and Floyd goes out to visit it, there's a scene where the, some of the people in space who are working on it uh, Pose for a selfie. Uh, cameras obviously set up, and they were being shot in front of the pit. And uh, it is so much like, okay, we came, we conquered, uh, we know about this, we're in charge. What great guys we are! And of course, it's at that point that it starts emitting this tremendous tone, which we've heard once before when it was emitted for the apes. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the point at which humanity just loses it. <laughs> um, and and you don't know what's happening. Well, what Kubrick and Clark had in mind happening is that this is a, a kind of a trigger. It's a warning that has been planted by the aliens millennia ago, probably. They're saying, okay, when somebody comes to this point and manages to dig down and discover this monolith, that means that the people on Earth have evolved enough so that they are now capable of being worth contacting and, and having some kind of scientific exchange. In Clark's mind, what it was was a warning saying, you've got some people here who have enough technology to be serious enemies and a threat, and they need to be dealt with. That's not how it's dealt with in the movie, though. It's just something awesome at first. Um, so the next section of the film, the one that we uh, see in the spacecraft, is the travel to Jupiter, the one that we just talked about there going beyond the infinite. Mm -hmm. uh, and that mission is largely depicted in silence. You have some air conditioning, and later, um, once you get into the spacesuit scenes, it's uh, breathing. And for, sometimes when it doesn't make any sense, you're hearing just this human breath going on, which is, it makes it seem like the humanity is just this slender, humanity is breath. I mean, the words that we use for the soul, like spirit, are words that have to do with breath. And... So there's just this very tenuous presence of humanity. It's not our intelligence. It's just the mere ability to breathe is what we've got. And all surrounding it is this hardware. Most of the crew has been put into suspended animation in these very forebodingly coffin-shaped things, the plastic looks like. And we are just two astronauts awake. Um, and 
they have a lot of trouble communicating when uh, they decide to, to listen to what their people are telling them back home, which is where we get our info dump and they explain to us what this mission is about. Um, this is played back. They, they can't have a conversation back and forth in real time because if you're in the orbit of Jupiter, it would take 53 minutes for an exchange to start. So if I say something on Earth, 53 minutes later, it would arrive at Jupiter. And then there'd be another 53 minutes before your answer received back. So it's not practical to have these exchanges back and forth. So you sit and listen. So that is already another element in this, this communication. But it turns out, of course, that these astronauts don't really know what mission they're on. They've been lied to. Uh, they've been told that they're out there to discover something, but they they don't realize this business about the monoliths, which has been kept uh, a big secret. And of course, this is where we encounter Hal. Um, now, it's often been pointed out that if you take one letter of the alphabet forward from each of the letters that makes up Hal's name, it becomes IBM. Kubrick mm -hmm. says that was just a coincidence. He never had that in mind. And uh, I think we have to take his word for it, but it's certainly an interesting coincidence. Well, Hal is is written in all caps, too. It's right. not like the, the computer's name is Hal. Right. And this is a computer, the computer that talks to them and gives them instructions in the monotone. Yes. And the thing about um, Hal is that... Or, or it's not a monotone exactly. It's just a no. very soothing... Just a, it's the most uh, disturbing, soothing voice you'll ever hear. Yeah, it's creepy and soothing at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, some people have tried to argue that it's supposed to be gay, by the way, and, and Kubrick was very indignant at that suggestion. But he did try two different voice actors to do the voice of Hal before he finally got the one. And he, he wanted an actor who's, who would not sound specifically American, but sort of what they call mid-Atlantic, mid a little bit British, mm -hmm. a little bit American. Mm -hmm. But Hal has been programmed to lie to the astronauts. But he has got this higher intelligence level. It's an extraordinarily uh, sophisticated, human-like mind and yet, uh, and his job is to find out the truth about everything and stay on top of uh, to all the technical facts and to be fully informed of everything. But his other job, which they've assigned him, is to lie to the astronauts and keep them from discovering what their real mission is about until they get there. And that is supposed to be what causes Hal to go insane. These two orders conflict. That's not all spelled out in the movie at all. I think you need to have that explained to you in order to get it. But that, that is what Kubrick and Clark had in mind anyway. Mm -hmm. So Poole tries to order Hal around and, and solve problem. Of course, Hal lies to him about some damage being made in order to lure him outside the spacecraft. And uh, so Hal is lying. And then when Poole uh, discovers that he's he's got he's been tricked and so on, then he gets into this conversation with the other astronaut, Bowman, and the two of them um, have this conversation in the pod area, in pod bay, where they are trying to deceive Hal by uh, cutting off from his ability to, to hear what they're saying. However, Hal can read lips, and so uh, he's able to figure out what they're doing, and then he manages to maneuver both of them. Uh, in the ways that he wants and, and gets one of them killed and uh, only one remaining. 
So the rest of it is about a, a conversation uh, or an exchange rather between Poole and Hal, which Poole is just trying to reduce Hal's intelligence in order to make him less capable of understanding, rob him of brain functions. So again, it's about the reducing things down to a, a song, Daisy Daisy, um, which gets sung at the end. The bicycle bill for two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the end of the dialogue in the movie, which goes on for quite some longer time. So it's this brief period of lies and miscommunications and misunderstandings is framed by these two long stretches of no speech at all. Um, and, of course, Poole doesn't understand his own predicament. He winds up in this really strange fancy, old-fashioned hotel room where he has nothing to eat but canned beans, if I remember right. Um, and a lot of it, it, Kubrick just starts playing around at this point. And here, his impulse to make things mysterious really, I think, gets away with him because he seems to have Bull observing himself getting older and then dying. And th- there's no good reason for that. And people have tried all kinds of ways to explain this, but there's not a good explanation. It's just something that Kubrick thought would be cool. <laughs> so to, to me, it's the other device in the movie that baffles people for a good reason, besides the, the bone turning into the spacecraft. At any rate, uh, so what we get is in silence with nobody to talk to. Um, he dies without being able to understand what his whole life has meant, what this experience means and then we see we're supposed to understand and not everybody did understand that he is reborn then as the space child floating out looking like a child in uterus and his eyes opening now clark's book what happens the space child is actually uh, designed to get rid of those orbiting nuclear weapons that clark was so worried about so he opens his eyes and explodes all the nuclear weapons in orbit to, to disarm humanity in a way that prevents them from being a real threat to these aliens that have taken such an interest in us. Mm-hmm. Um, that theme is just not there in the movie. You have no idea. What is it? Okay, this is some kind of rebirth. This is something new happening. It's sort of spooky, um, but it's it's just left out there uh, puzzling. So Clark and Hubert both are united in using the failure of humanity to grasp their transcendent reality uh, that they stumbled upon as a, a major theme, but Ernest Clark heads toward trying to explain it and justify it. Uh, Kubrick embraces it and mystifies it further. The pseudo-divine encounter here is depicted not through a new scriptural revelation, uh, but by long silences surrounding humanity's complete bafflement in the face of this superior technology. This cocky self-confidence in the opening scenes in space is dwarfed by the cosmic silence surrounding Poole's long, seemingly pointless life. He's not a hero. He's merely a seed planted by cosmic gardeners. Mm-hmm. Well, if that doesn't take us to the infinite, then I don't know what does. <laughs> of course, the movie, the, the way that Kubrick has done it um, and taken off from Clark, I suppose we could wrap it up and, and say... Uh, Let's not say there are infinite interpretations, but there are innumerable <laughs> interpretations. Right. He, he invites uh, a mystery. 
but sometimes you just have to confront the mystery and say, ah, it's a mystery. It's yes, it's deliberately ambiguous. No, this is not the true meaning or the true interpretation. It is deliberately confusing or accidentally confusing. Yeah, and a lot of people um, like to say, well, art communicates, but in some, in a lot of ways, this film is not really communicating anything. It is communicate if it's communicating anything it's communicating that this is a tremendous work of art that cannot be understood by any one person really yeah and there that there are things that are beyond human understanding at least in our current state of evolution Mm -hmm. well thank you paul you're very welcome i enjoyed doing that yeah that was great talk to you later That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.